This archival program of Design Matters with Debbie Millman was produced for Voice America Internet Radio. New programs with better audio quality are now being produced for Design Observer. You can subscribe in the iTunes Store or at the Observer Media Channel on Design Observer. Welcome to Design Matters with Debbie Millman, the show that takes you inside the provocative and stimulating world of design and branding as it intersects with contemporary culture. Here's your host of Design Matters, Debbie Millman. Design now seems to be everywhere. It is in television ads being used to sell products at Target. It is on bus kiosks being used to sell Condé Nast magazines like Vanity Fair and Vogue and GQ. It is on billboards used being used to sell cars. It is featured in Apple computer ads used to sell iPods. And it is on TV shows like The Apprentice being used to outwit other players and sell soda. It is truly everywhere. Today's broadcast is the official midpoint of my first season, first season in quotes, of Design Matters. And in thinking about my guest this week, the enchanting Stephen Heller, and my previous opening statements, it occurred to me that while we have had truly robust conversations about design, culture, and branding with my previous guests, the show has not really put a stake in the ground as to the definition of design and the new uncharted place that design in our culture is currently having. So what is that elusive definition of design really? I am not sure that anyone listening today would agree on what that definition is. To truly determine what it is is an exhausting dilemma. It is an art. It is a service, a criticism of society, a mirror of society. Is the service we provide our real art or our artistic achievements the true service that we provide? So I pose the question to you, dear listeners, what is design? In trying to come up with a provisional answer, the word that comes to mind is selection. Design is the conditions upon which the act of selecting becomes art. It is in these moments, rare now in our culture, that one is tentatively permitted to dream of a day when design might merge with philosophy itself and even lead the way to a true science. And like music, this form of expression would be the pure and unabashed combination and balance of art and math and science. What is the common denominator to great design work? I looked back to the 1964 Design Manifesto, First Things First, to find an answer. The manifesto was originally written by British designer Ken Garland and 21 of his design colleagues, and the manifesto boldly encouraged students, designers, and teachers to reconsider their opportunities outside the noise and high-pitched scream of consumer selling in favor of applying their talents to promote education, culture, and a greater awareness of the world. This was not intended to advocate the abolition of contemporary design, but was simply a call for the reevaluation of our profession's priorities. So rather than only applying our skills to selling dog biscuits, designer coffee, diamonds, instant film, french fries, detergents, hair gel, cigarettes, credit cards, sneakers, light beer, and heavy-duty recreational vehicles, they try to inject passion, truth, and reality into their design work. 
But herein lies the inherent dichotomy with that statement. There will always, always be the need to design dog biscuits and hair gel and french fries. And despite what many marketers now believe, a computer is not the only tool you need to do this. We must. We have to inject passion, truth, reality, and integrity to this work as well. All design, no matter where and what it is, has the power to inspire us to think and grow, to teach us what we don't know, and to inform and remind us of what is truly important. And what is important today is honesty. What we need to create in response to the torrential acceleration of this new design economy is honesty. Every gesture we make now is cinematic because it gets swept up into a swift sequence of gestures that precede and follow it sort of the ultimate domino effect. The condition of design today has become the condition of our culture. And rather than our culture being a prisoner of design, design can be an inspiration to our culture, an opportunity to constantly reach for higher ground. But no single gesture can be excluded from the assessment of this condition. Dog biscuits and ballot forms and annual reports and propaganda posters all need to be approached with the same honesty and integrity. If not, we segregate our power to communicate what is truly going on in our culture, which then dilutes it. Every gesture, every design is held to the context in which it is made. And this context is moving so fast that new gestures and new designs constantly have to be invented. No matter how bleak the situation into which we have been thrown by our new, our new design culture, it does offer opportunities. We need only invent them. By understanding our living and practicing context, we blow open, if only for an instant, avenues of honesty and liberty not yet charted or even explored. With me today to talk about these lofty topics is Stephen Heller. Stephen Heller is the art director of the New York Times Book Review. He is also, he is also the co-chair of the MFA Design Department at the School of Visual Arts, which he has been doing for seven years. He contributes regularly to magazines such as Print, Eye, Baseline, and Metropolis. He also edits Voice, the American Institute of Graphic Arts online journal of graphic design. To your listeners, he has authored, co-authored, or edited over 90 books, 90. The most recent, the award-winning Pushpin Graphic and Handwritten, Expressive Lettering in the Digital Age. He is currently working on a book called Iron Fists, Totalitarian Graphics of the 20th Century for Faden Press. He received the AIGA Medal in 1999. And last but not least, he is currently living in New York City with his fond memories of a democratic administration. Welcome, Steve. Hi. You sound, uh, you sound so sick. Oh, sweetie, I am a little bit under the weather, but I'm trying to convince myself that it's a sexy voice. It is, very. Do I sound terrible? Tell me if I sound terrible. No, no, I've had goosebumps listening to you. Oh, God. <laughs> Thank you. Well, so let's start by talking politics. Tell me, does politics play a big part in your career and in your projects? Well, not in my career, since I'm not running for any public office. Uh, but 
politics in in a, the sense of uh, a human function plays a role in things that I care about. I mean, I care about who runs the country and how the country is governed and what policies exemplify uh, the nation that we live in. And, you know, I think that's probably true for everybody. Did I take part in the most recent election? Uh, not to the extent that I would have liked to, uh, although Why not? my wife and friends... Well, I, it, it's... Uh, it's complicated. <laughs> well, but, we have an hour, Steve, so yeah. get started. Um, part of it has to do with my job. I mean, I, yes. I work in the newsroom of the New York Times, and we are not supposed to be involved in political uh, partisanship. Mm-hmm. And uh, and we don't, as uh, we, we take that very seriously. On the other hand, I have another part of my life, and, and that part of my life is... Uh, is partisan, but beyond partisanship, I mean, there are things that go on in our culture uh, where graphic design can be used as a as a tool that I at least try to uh, encourage my students to take part in. Uh, and, and certainly, as a writer on design issues, I focus on that a good part of the time. Now, I find it interesting that you're not supposed to go on record with political standpoints, yet overall the paper has a particular political stand. Is that something that you find that bothers you, or is it something that you feel comfortable living with? No, I'm very comfortable with it. The newspaper is a newspaper. It's a journalistic entity. It's, uh, it is supposed to report on the news and uh, analyze the news from an objective standpoint, and uh, that's what the Times does extremely well. And then there are the editorial pages where... Commentary and, and critique are made, and, and they're clearly delineated, and uh, that's perfectly fine with me. A couple of, of, of quick questions just for our listeners, so uh, for those that might be listening that aren't fully familiar with your vast accomplishments. How long have you been working at the New York Times? I've been here 30 years. And how did you first get the job? Well, I had been working for other publications, uh, essentially underground publications, or what was called underground um, New York Free Press, uh, Screw, um, uh, Evergreen Review. There were a bunch of them that I cut my teeth on. I started very early. I started when I was 17, and uh, it was a wonderful time to be able to do this. I mean, uh, we have the Internet now, and lots of people are getting their start in online magazines or blogs. Uh, the The corresponding... Uh, experience when I was younger were newspapers, uh, magazines, and uh, just doing kind of street graphics. Yes, I'm going I'm to talk to you a little bit about blogs later on in the show. Um, but in terms of your <coughs> early career, um, you did mention Screw Magazine. Now, it is true that you and Milton Glaser worked for Al Goldstein and essentially created the magazine. No. Give us some backstory <laughs> there. No. Um, Milton actually designed a logo and a format for it, I think it was like two or three years into the publication. And it's kind of a quirky little story. I, I started uh, working at an underground paper when I was just 17. And uh, at that paper, I met uh, the managing editor, who was a guy named Jim Buckley. And uh, one day, another a rather uh, portly fellow walked in to sell some stories. And his name was Al Goldstein. Uh, and the so stories he was portly he, back then. 
Yes. <laughs> and the stories he was selling were kind of interesting. He was an industrial spy for the Bendix Corporation. And um, he wanted to go on the record. Having uh, done this, he, he wrote a two-part piece about being an industrial spy. And I was 17 years old. I didn't even know what industrial spies were. But I was the art director of the publication, which happened kind of by accident. And I was also a cartoonist slash illustrator. So I actually illustrated that story. It was the first cover I ever did for that um, publication. And um, Goldstein got to know Buckley, and they talked about various publishing things. Goldstein at that time was writing for and or editing for some of these um, blood and guts mag uh, newspapers, uh, mm -hmm. the kinds of things that the National Enquirer is. But in those days, they were all made up. And so he would put all our names into stories, like uh, Steve Heller bites a uh, head off of baby or... Mm -hmm. Steve Heller spends time with Michael Jackson. I don't know. Um, and that those things, too. Um, and, uh, you know, we all got a big giggle out of it. But he wanted out of that, and uh, he came up with an idea for um, a sex publication that was would, would kind of break down all the taboos and boundaries uh, that existed at that time, and he did. I mean, it, it, you could devote many more than one show to what he did and... and his bad rap, in some cases, is, is deserved, but in other cases, he really was a pioneer. He was a, a very smart guy in the, in the same tradition of uh, Lenny Bruce. Uh, mm -hmm. uh, so I, I, was, I was fortunate, actually, to be able to work with him and, and during that time. Well, we'll uh, have to come back to this topic after our break. You are listening to Design Matters with Debbie Millman on Voice America Business. I am Debbie Millman, and my guest today is New York Times Book Review Art Director and acclaimed author Stephen Heller. We will be right back with our broadcast after these messages. Please don't go away. Fresh, dynamic, and totally prepared for continuing business education. Business Talk Radio. Voice America Business at voiceamerica.com. Hi, I'm Rob Wallace. My partners and I run one of the country's premier brand identity and packaging design consultancies, Wallace Church. And if you're like me, you've already become an avid fan of the program that you're listening to, Design Matters. And if you're like me, you want more. You want a deeper dive into some of the strategic and creative issues that have inspired design and affect consumer buying behavior. You want to engage the speakers on a one-to-one -one basis. Well, ladies and gentlemen, we are in luck. Through the Institute of International Research, a three-day conference is being held in Manhattan's Grand Dom on April 18th through 20th. The conference name is FUSE, and its focus is on the synergy of brand strategy, design, and performance. It promises to be the year's most informative brand identity industry event. Debbie Millman of Design Matters will join Cheryl Swanson to host an elite group of brand identity thought leaders from the marketing, design, and consumer insights worlds. You'll hear from Mary Ann Pesch, the president of Gillette Company's personal care division, on the identity strategies that have shaped some of the most successful world brand launches. Design Matters guests Professor Grant McCracken will analyze the cultural trends that affect consumer interactions with brands. Stanley Hainsworth, global creative director of Starbucks, will be sharing the critical role that design played in the success of that brand phenom, and I will be moderating a panel of corporate design leaders from Nestle, Unilever Foods, Sharing Plow, and the retailer CVS 
where you can directly engage them with your questions. This event is dedicated to delivering the most forward-thinking and inspirational as well as real-world and actionable criteria into how you can optimize brand identity in your organization. It is simply not to be missed. For more information, call 888-670-8200. That's 888-670-8200. Or visit www.iirusa.com backslash BIPD for brand identity package design. Again, www.iirusa.com backslash BIPD. Mention Design Matters and receive a $200 discount off the standard fee. I look most forward to meeting you on April 18th at the Plaza here in New York City. Are you tired of sitting on the bench? Are you ready to get in the game? Then join David Hayes and Jim Inman every Tuesday at 3 p.m. Pacific, 6 Eastern for The Coach. Exclusively on BusinessAmericaRadio.com. The Coach is a program by financial professionals for financial professionals. Know the techniques used on the field by top financial professionals for personal and professional success. Get off the bench and join The Coach every Tuesday at 3 p.m. Pacific, 6 Eastern, live on BusinessAmericaRadio.com. Keeping you a step ahead of the changing world of business. This is Voice America Business. Welcome back to Design Matters with Debbie Millman. If you would like to be a caller on the show, dial toll-free at 1-866-233-7861. Once again, that's 1-866-233-7861. And now, back to the host of Design Matters, Debbie Millman. Welcome back, everybody. It is 3.20 Eastern Standard Time, and you are listening to Design Matters with Debbie Millman, broadcasting live from New York City. I am your host, Debbie Millman, and my guest today is New York Times Book Review Art Director, and the acclaimed and adorable author, Stephen Heller. If you'd like to join our conversation or if you have a question for either of us, please call 1-866-233-7861. Well, Steve, um, I have been perusing the many, many, many books that you have in the marketplace. And in your book, The Education of a Typographer, you say, and I'm going to quote you here, that teaching a student graphic design before teaching her, and I love that you refer to your anonymous uh, student as a her, type and typography is like teaching a baby to walk before she crawls. Why do you feel that way? Well, type is the language that we speak as designers, as graphic designers. So if we don't know that language, uh, we're just going to drivel. <laughs> the mouth. I mean, whether we walk or not is another story. You can walk without knowing language. But the fact of the matter, I try to mix my metaphors whenever I can. Uh, the fact is, uh, we've got to know that basic language, and then we've got to know it so well that we can work with it both functionally and aesthetically. Um, it's not something that uh, it can be taken lightly. Whenever students apply to the MFA program that I co-chair with Lita Tellerico, um, the first question is, how much type have you experienced? I mean, and I use the word experience as opposed to practice because it's more than just a practice. It really is uh, living uh, the material. You know, I, I, I love watching music. Uh, 
sometimes I like watching it more than I like listening to it because when you see a really fantastic guitar player uh, like Clapton, I mean, you, you know that he's channeling something into those fingers and it's all mm-hmm. coming out of this instrument. And the same has to be true with typography. I mean, it's it's before we had the computer, we had typositor, we had cold type, before that we had hot type. People who worked with type and worked with it well understood every nuance of the, of, of kerning, of letting. Um, they understood all the different varieties. They knew how to work with those varieties, what married well with another. Um, and, you know, I think we've gotten to the point where typography is... Uh, in part functional, in part expressive. Uh, sometimes it's artistic. Sometimes it, it, it's monumental. Sometimes it's not. But it's important, really, to have a total grasp uh, of that particular craft and art. I find it really interesting. In, in last week's show, um, Michael Ian Kay and James Victoria were going back and forth a little bit about their interest in typography. James Victoria was really pretty much stating that he was not really terribly interested in typography, and Mike Lee and Kay was talking about how he just treasures all of the nuances. Then again, going through some of your books in this last week, I, I was looking at the education of a typographer and was reading Art Chantry's uh, essay. So I'd like to read you this quote, because I think it's a really interesting point of view in terms of the conversation we're having now. And it goes like this. One of my great professional sorrows is the loss of the typographer typesetter in contemporary graphic design. With the advent of the computer and the death of the type shop, all graphic designers had to be their own typographers. I learned that graphic designers are not typographers. The mere fact that all graphic designers now have to act as their own typographers has, in effect, tossed out 500 years of expertise and replaced it with a level of amateurism and experimentation that is going to take decades to absorb. What do you think about that? Well, I think he's right and he's wrong. I mean, the the typographer, as he describes it, is the craftsman, the the, the person in the type shop who set the type and and uh, proofed those types onto galleys. But ultimately, they were sent to the designer or the art director, and the designer art director who spec the type to begin with then has to finesse, then has to nuance, um, and so I, I think. What's happened now is that the computer uh, allows us to do it a lot quicker. It allows, it gives the illusion that we're doing something better. Uh, what art is saying is we need more time. Uh, what happened in that uh, calculus is you did spec it, then you sent it to the type shop. You, sometimes you put it in a pneumatic tube and it went up two flights, or sometimes the, the messenger came and picked up the envelope and it took a day just to get there. So I think time is an issue, that we, we set so many different variations within, say, 20 minutes that we really don't understand what we're doing. We're just taking a Chinese menu approach to type, and I think that, that is where he's, he's perfectly accurate. I think that if we teach uh, our students to work on the computer the way the, the trade schools and, and the apprenticeships taught the craftsmen of yore, the, the lithographic union people, um, to work with type, uh, then perhaps we'll get a better uh, 
great of typographer and it won't take 500 years and it may not even take a generation. It may take a, a much shorter time if that's built into the training. I don't know whether it is built in. I think some schools, some teachers are type fanatics and will do that. Others look at type as kind of, um, you know, an expedient. Uh, you got to know it and once you know it, then we can get to the fun stuff, which is conceptualizing or whatever. Mm -hmm. I think that I'm probably one of the last generations to have actually made the physical transformation from drafting table to computer. I graduated uh, college in, oh, God, I don't even know if I want to admit this on the air, but in 1983. So, you know, I started working on the computer in the late 80s, but have had that fundamental training of learning how to set type, of learning how to work with a rapidograph, of learning how to use markers to, you know, sketch out what I was doing prior to actually um, doing it. What do, you, do you feel like there's something missing now in the way that young designers go immediately to the computer to create the concepts that they ultimately are showing their clients? Well, I think there's something a little skewed there, but I think it's inevitable. I mean, that is the tool that we use, so we can't poo-poo it too much. What we do at the MFA program is uh, in, in the fall we have type camp and we send uh, – all the students up to Ross McDonald's farm or house where he has a, a, a number of metal presses, uh, Vandercooks and the like, and he's been collecting, uh, accumulating tons of metal type, and he has the students at least understand that the word leading comes from lead, uh, <laughs> you know, that, that there is typecase furniture, uh, and it's not a table and a chair. I mean, once you learn about intaglio printing, once you learn about uh, the, the, the basic forms that date back to Gutenberg and only changed sometime in the uh, mid-50s, um, you understand the, the traditions of type, you understand the language of type. Uh, I think it's important for everybody to at least come in contact with the old. It doesn't mean they have to practice it, but, you know, it's, it's like learning grammar. Uh, you have to learn even some of the archaic stuff. And some of the archaic stuff is obviously arcane, and, and, and it's going to uh, never be used again, except it's going to be in your, in your brain sack. You know, it's like I've, I've felt at my age, I've reached a point where I've got so much stuff in my brain, I've got to start deleting. <laughs> store anymore, but I think you know students they have tons and tons of memory, and they can get memory upgrades as much as they want. yeah, I think um, I need some more RAM put into my memory bank but I think that that's one thing that they should have there, and it should be part of um, you know their their invisible history. Do you feel that given the really different skill sets that were taught in schools twenty years ago to now? Do you feel like there is a difference in the quality of the minds that you're seeing in the uh, college now, in the college environment now? No, I mean, I, I think you see different things. Frankly, I never went to art school. I went to, <laughs> I went to SVA for three months to get out of the draft, and I was thrown out by the same person who I've authored two books with and who later hired me to teach in the MFA program of illustration at SVA. And who is that? Uh, Marshall Arisman. Okay. Um, and... So I never really had an art education or an art-slash-design art education. I went to NYU for a couple of years and studied English. Um, so I really can't tell what was taught then that was useful, what's taught now. I mean, I, I, I do know that people had, uh, students had to do a lot of hand work, but, you know, hand work is hand work. It's, it, it's, it's work. 
If you learn how to use your hands so that those hands become extensions of the mind, that's something else again. And that can be taught on the computer. It can be taught, you know, cutting with an exacto, or it can be taught setting type. I, I actually worked on the very last hot metal page of the New York Times, and it was one of those moments that I wish I had on film because um, it was a darkened room, um, one light hanging over the, the printer's bench, um, and I guess your music is coming on, so I'll continue <laughs> that you. later. You made that easy for me. We're going to take a break, listeners. We have a couple of callers waiting. Uh, in the meantime, you're listening to Design Matters with Debbie Millman on Voice America Business. My guest today is Steve Heller. We will be right back with our broadcast after these messages. Please don't go away. You're listening to The Bottom Line in Business Talk, Voice America Business. Good afternoon. I'm Pamela DeCesar of Brand Muse, and I'm excited to talk with you about the upcoming Brand Identity and Package Design Conference in April in New York City. I've been involved in this event for a number of years and love the yearly discussions that examine marketing, design, research, and production trends and get to the heart of the most pressing issues facing us in the industry today. Discover the reality of design in corporate America and the paradox of packaging. Design gurus Bruce Mao and John Maida, along with brand leaders from Gillette, General Mills, and MTV, will go in-depth into the most pressing issues we face and will deliver cutting-edge ideas that demonstrate brand growth and bottom-line impact through innovative strategy and design. Highlights this year include a dynamic multi-speaker symposium focused on capturing the global market, more speakers and sessions than ever before, Two new interactive workshops on making better color choices and breaking out of the box to achieve packaging innovation. A panel discussion on how two functions, creative and research, can work together effectively. Plus a cocktail party to connect and network with colleagues and friends. For more information, call 888-670-8200 or visit www.iirusa.com backslash BIPD or email register at IIRUSA.com. Mention that you heard about the event from Design Matters and receive a $200 discount off the standard fee. So rise to the challenge. Consider this conference an investment in your brand's future. Clear your calendar and prepare to walk away with inspiration, insight, and creative new ideas to implement when you return to the office. So see you in the Big Apple at the Plaza, April 18th through the 20th. Technology is changing the way we live our lives and how we do business. On Managing Technology the Right Way, we'll talk about the benefits of technology and the great things it allows us to do, as well as its associated risks. Heard every Friday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time, Sun Jogal, the host of Managing Technology the Right Way, will interview business leaders and other experts that have shaped the way we use technology. If you want to keep up with the changing world of technology, listen to Managing Technology the Right Way with Sun Joe Gall every Friday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time right here on BusinessAmericaRadio.com. Keeping you a step ahead of the changing world of business, this is Voice America Business. We're back with Design Matters with Debbie Millman. If you have a question for Debbie, feel free to call us at 1-866-233-7861. Once again, here's the host of Design Matters, Debbie Millman. 
live from New York City. You are listening to Design Matters with Debbie Millman, the only talk radio show on the air focusing on issues relating to graphic design, branding, and cultural anthropology. I am Debbie Millman, your host, and my guest today is New York Times Book Review Art Director and acclaimed author, Stephen Heller. If you want to join our conversation, and why wouldn't you? Or if you have a question for either of us, please call one 866 Steve, we have a lot going on right now. You and I need to talk about monographs. We need to talk about blogs. We need to talk about American Idol, for those listeners that might not be aware of your private little habit. And we have three callers on the line. So first we have Gregory from New York. Hello, Gregory. Hi, Debbie. Hi, Stephen. Hi, Gregory. Um, I, I, it was so great to hear uh, words like rapidograph and um, <laughs> art camp and letting and uh, typography. Um, I, I have a question. I'm just wondering if, if you would agree or not. Um, do you think that there's a dimension lost today in, uh, in young graphic artists because they are not familiar with the history of graphics and the history of graphic advertising and that, um, in truth, they would probably gain inspiration from it if they were familiar with it, and especially since so many of the products that are worked on um, in, in, in the uh, advertising world are products that have been around for a long time, so they have a graphic history themselves. Well, it's a really good question. I have to say this. I write a lot about history, and I've written about the history of advertising as a kind of uh, mother of graphic design. But, you know, when I started, I didn't know the history, and it didn't interfere with my appreciation of the form uh, and of the practice. I think now there has been more taught in the schools uh, regarding history, and I think it is a key part of our education. In fact, I've advocated putting in a fifth year to all undergraduate programs where you can integrate history and um, practical studio courses, which will never happen, but it's something that is worth talking about. But I do think that you know, our history, while it can be inspiring, as you say, and, and certainly knowing what wheels were invented before you try to invent your own, um, is not necessarily a surefire prescription for uh, great design, good design, uh, or even mediocre design. I think it's, it's something we should know. But uh, it's how you ultimately absorb that knowledge that's going to make any sort of... Uh, difference, any consequence whatsoever. And I think a lot of students, certainly on the, the undergraduate level, couldn't care less. I mean, what they want to do is produce. They go to art school uh, and design school because they want to make things. And uh, sitting in a class uh, talking about the history is not necessarily making things, which is why I think history classes and studio classes should be combined. Well, I guess I, I guess the, the point. Uh, I always wonder if there would be better actors if they watched actors in um from the silver screen in vintage pictures to get a better idea of, of their style and their approach. And if they had a, uh, a little bit of history back up, they might gain something from it. Well, I think you're right. But also, if you watch uh, some of the actors from the silver screen of the 20s, 30s, 40s, you see those people in very they're, – they're very different. They're acting uh, – craft was quite different because they had different technologies, they had different needs, and so they're kind of arcane. If you tried to do what uh, uh, 
Humphrey Bogart did today, you'd never make it. So sure, I think you have to keep sure. it in perspective and in proportion. At the same time, it's really important to, to know the history of, of your craft. Great. Thank you, Stephen. Thank you, Debbie. Thank you for calling. You know what I think is interesting, Steve? You were talking about people going to school and, and learning things, learning to do things. I think that the common denominator here between the stars of the silver screen and the designers of a previous age and our current graphic designers and current celebrities is this desire, this search for fame. And I think that one of the areas that we see that probably most prevalent is in the numerous number of designers that are creating their own monographs, essentially creating books, vanity books of their own, showcasing their work. What's your feeling about what's happening in this arena? Well, I think the word vanity is, is uh, key. <laughs> They're not all uh, a priori uh, irrelevant or, or n not useful. I mean, they are. Uh, or some of them are, at any rate. But I do Which think... think are, as, just so I know. Well, I just saw um, a new one uh, published by Monticelli Press uh, by Rick Velicenti. Mm -hmm. Now, Rick's work is all over the place, and it's, it's quite exciting. It, 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 he is one of those uh, very interesting people who um, has tried an awful lot. He's crossed a lot of borders. He's uh, pushed a lot of envelopes. He's angered a number of people. He's done things that are tasteful and tasteless. And they're all, they all come together in this one book, which is kind of like a, an explosion of, of his work on, on the page. From a, an artifact standpoint, from an objectness, uh, mm -hmm. the book is actually quite fantastic. From do I learn anything from this? I'm not sure. I have to spend more time with it. But on first glance, I feel like I'm just being bombarded with work. It's like going to um, a two-and-a-half-hour uh, show that is not just a slideshow but a multimedia extravaganza. And, um, you know, I think it's, it's fine, but it's a vanity issue. Um, I, there are – Paul Rand – you know, uh, his books were monographs. The, his first thoughts on design, which came out in 1947, it really went step by step how to create advertising at that time that was unique, that was revolutionary in a, in a sense, within the commercial uh, confines of the marketplace. Mm -hmm. um, Bob Gill, very, very much the same. Bob Gill is a very smart um, conceptual designer, and each book that he does is a kind of step-by-step -step into his mind and out of his mind again. It's not simply about him. It's about what he can give to the reader, and I think that's the real um, uh, distinguishing uh, value. If, if you can go into one of these books and you can feel that the author, meaning the designer, is giving you something then there's certain in intrinsic value. If all they're doing is showing the work and showing how clever they can be with different papers and die cuts and this and that and the other thing, then it's, uh, you know, it's a nice exercise and, and maybe even worth keeping, uh, you know, as you would keep Hummelware on your uh, uh, mantelpiece. Well, I'm going to play devil's advocate for a moment, Steve. How is a vanity monograph really any different from a major retrospective of an artist's work in a museum or a gallery. I mean, what about looking back just over the arc of somebody's work to see where they began, where they ended up, and how they got there, how they took that path there? How is that not vanity as well? 
But well, there is still a purpose for it. Yeah, it's a purpose. I think if if um, Chuck Close or, or uh, you know, some other great artist decided they're the curator and they're going to put up a show of their own work and celebrate themselves, then you have to look at it through uh, one pair of glasses. If a yes. curator at a museum... Very, very big difference there. Yeah. yeah, if a curator is putting on a, a retrospective show, there is a critical intelligence, a critical overview. Now, it may not be as critical as, it, as, as you would like, I mean, the, the so-called toe-to-toe idea, but it is... Um, there, there is a filter by which the work is presented to the public, and there's a way of explaining the work. There's a way of narrating the work, because the work no longer becomes simply this person's output. It's this person's output that's mitigated and docented, by the, uh, in a way, by another uh, force, the curatorial force or the authorial force. And well, I think it has, that, there's more of an objective perspective there than say, renting out a gallery space and putting up the work that you created from kindergarten till now in hopes that somebody will think, oh, my goodness, look at that arc of genius that's occurring in, in this space of however many years. Right. Um, what I mean, there have been a plethora of books that have come out over the last five years. Um, Sagmeister, Paula Scher, I mean, Tibor Kalman's wonderful book. Um, uh, which books out there do you feel are worthy of really being considered a monograph? Well, I think Paula's book is actually a standard bearer. Um, it, she's an excellent writer. She's witty. She's candid. Um, that book was meant for you and me. It was meant to show a process, but also share in that process, open a door onto her world, but also give something of herself to the reader. And I think it does that quite well. Yeah, I, I mean, and I think the wonderful thing about Paula's book is that it has a certain humility to it as well as almost, a, you know, pulling away the curtain to see, you know, the, the man and the woman behind, you know, the, the big business. And yeah. I think that's, that's, there's a wonderful warmth and, and genuineness to that book. It is, and you know, you, I know many people who are not necessarily in the field who have actually read it because it's an entertaining read, and, and I think we can say that about any books. I mean, I like reading books about music. I like, I loved reading the Dylan Chronicles. I mean, these are things that are the Dylan Chronicles. What is it? It's an autobiography. It's a monograph, but it's fascinating because it does bring you into his mythology. It brings you into his real life, uh, and those are things. These books should have a variety of rationales for existence. And one of them really is entertainment. But the other part of it is, if you're doing a book about work, is to sh- somehow share that, uh, that the magic that you're feeling and not simply just say, look at me, I'm pounding my chest, I'm uh, the greatest thing since sliced bread. Um, I think, for example, the Kahan book that came out a number of years ago, that was mm-hmm. more like breast uh, pounding. It was, it was a, a lovely monograph in the sense that it was produced well, but it didn't go any further. It didn't tell me anything more about uh, the person. I mean, for me, this isn't exactly a monograph, but Hillman Curtis's book on Flash Mm -hmm. is actually a damn good book, whether you care about Flash or not. Mm -hmm. And and I'm not going to learn how to do Flash uh, unless somebody takes my hand and actually forces me, but it was actually an interesting read because I got some insight into the to the rationale. There's your music again. There's our music. Oh, we have so much going on. I might have to do another another episode with you, Steve. Um, well, listeners, you are listening to Design Matters with Debbie Millman on Voice America Business. I'm Debbie Millman, and my guest today is Steve Heller. 
We have a number of callers still waiting to talk to Steve. I have a lot of questions left for him. So we will be back with our broadcast right after these messages. Please don't go away. More and more people are starting their day with informative, focused business talk. Top experts. Today's business issues. Voice America Business at voiceamerica.com. Hi, I'm Rob Wallace. My partners and I run one of the country's premier brand identity and packaging design consultancies, Wallace Church. And if you're like me, you've already become an avid fan of the program that you're listening to, Design Matters. And if you're like me, you want more. You want a deeper dive into some of the strategic and creative issues that have inspired design and affect consumer buying behavior. You want to engage the speakers on a one-to-one basis. Well, ladies and gentlemen, we are in luck. Through the Institute of International Research, a three-day conference is being held in Manhattan's Grand Dom on April 18th through 20th. The conference name is Fuse, and its focus is on the synergy of brand strategy, design, and performance. It promises to be the year's most informative brand identity industry event. Debbie Millman of Design Matters will join Cheryl Swanson to host an elite group of brand identity thought leaders from the marketing, design, and consumer insights worlds. You'll hear from Mary Ann Pesch, the president of Gillette Company's personal care division, on the identity strategies that have shaped some of the most successful world brand launches. Design Matters guests Professor Grant McCracken will analyze the cultural trends that affect consumer interactions with brands. Stanley Hainsworth, Global Creative Director of Starbucks, will be sharing the critical role that design played in the success of that brand phenom. And I will be moderating a panel of corporate design leaders from Nestle, Unilever Foods, Sharing Plow, and the retailer CVS, where you can directly engage them with your questions. This event is dedicated to delivering the most forward-thinking and inspirational as well as real-world and actionable criteria into how you can optimize brand identity in your organization. It is simply not to be missed. For more information, call 888-670-8200. That's 888-670-8200. Or visit www.iirusa.com backslash BIPD for brand identity package design. Again, www.iirusa.com backslash BIPD. Mention Design Matters and receive a $200 discount off the standard fee. I look most forward to meeting you on April 18th at the Plaza here in New York City. The bottom line in business talk. Voice America Business. Welcome back to Design Matters with Debbie Millman. If you would like to be a caller on the show, dial toll-free at 1-866-233-7861. Once again, that's 1-866-233-7861. And now, back to the host of Design Matters, Debbie Millman. Welcome back, everybody. It is 3.49 Eastern Standard Time, and you are listening to Design Matters with Debbie Millman, live from New York City. I am your host, Debbie Millman, and my guest today is the lovely and brilliant New York Times Book Review Art Director and acclaimed author, Stephen Heller. We have three callers on the line, so I'm going to take the first. I believe we have Sam from New Jersey on the line. Hello, Debbie. Hello, Steve. Hi, Sam. 
with, my question has to do with the um, convergence of different aesthetics uh, internationally. With the globalization of more and more brands, I think we're starting to take greater notice of the distinct differences between an American aesthetic versus a European aesthetic and versus an Asian aesthetic in both typography as well as graphic design in general. Um, do you feel that the lines between these different aesthetics are starting to converge towards a more universal global aesthetic? And, and more importantly, in your, in your, in your opinion, uh, is this leading more towards homogeneous graphic design, or is it just a greater public acceptability of different aesthetics? Well, it's a good question, and I'd say yes. I'd also say, remember what the Swiss style was called. It was called the international style, and the whole idea in the late 40s and early 50s was to universalize graphic design through types like Helvetica, which came in the 50s, uh, and, and make a, a, a kind of common visual language, because there were so many uh, disparate uh, cultures. And I think now, because of the Internet, because of television, because of satellites, because of uh, high-speed aircraft, uh, these things are converging. And we, certainly America, you know for, probably for yourself, even in New Jersey, uh, there are lots of people who uh, are coming from other countries and, and bringing with them their own design cultures. I have in my own program uh, a good many international students who bring their ideas and, and then they absorb our ideas. So, yes, I think it's uh, coming together. It's, it's uh, not for, forcing a homogenous uh, design language. I think there are lots of different design languages now, and I think there are a variety of styles now, and that is good and it can be bad as well, but uh, I think that what we're seeing now is, is the breaking down of those uh, regional and national barriers in terms of visual aesthetic. Right. Great. Thank you. Okay. Thank you for your question. We now have Andrew on the line. Andrew from New York. You're on the air. Hello. How are you doing? Hi. Uh, quick question, Steve. Uh, you had talked about typography and the... Um, you know, looking backwards into the past as being a guide for the future. And I just wanted to know what benefits um, designers of today have that can help, you know, give them an advantage over the past. And looking forward, what are, you know, some of the exciting things to look at in the field? Well, I wish I knew the forward answer because then I'd be making a lot of money and producing some books that people might actually buy in the future. But uh, I would say that we do have a technology system now that allows us to draw from the past and then adapt and adopt. And uh, I'm doing a book right now with Gail Anderson called Old Type, New Type, and we're looking at how uh, vintage uh, works are being reapplied and adapted, both in a nostalgic way, in a vernacular way, but also in a kind of futuristic way. Um, I, I think because we have the, the technology that allows us to draw from all sorts of different uh, venues, uh, we're at a greater advantage than they were 20 years ago. But how that's going to play out in the future, I have no idea. Same here. Thank you very much. Okay. Thank you for calling. We now have Francesca on the line. Francesca, you're on the air. Hi, Debbie. Hi, Steve. This question Hi. is actually for Steve. Um, do you believe your formal training, your education has prepared you for what you do? Or did it somewhat encumber you with um, some antiquated notions or ideas? Well, as I said at the outset, I didn't have a formal education. I didn't. I, I spent three months at the School of Visual Arts and was asked to leave. Um, I learned on the street, as it were. I learned from friends. I learned from Brad Holland. I learned from uh, Seymour Quast. I learned from uh, Paul Rand. I learned from people who I, I 
became friendly with. I've learned from my wife, Louise Feely, a great deal about uh, aesthetics. Uh, I don't feel I've been hampered by a formal education. I feel hampered by not having uh, a really good education. Um, and and there are way, the reason I started the MFA program at SCA mm-hmm. in one way was to get that education that I didn't have, you know, hire a bunch of teachers who I wish I could have studied with. Right, and right. hopefully there's some sort of osmosis that's going on and it'll make me a better designer. Maybe it's too late. But, uh, no, I'm not, I, I'm not hampered by having a good education. I'm hampered by uh, what I lost, what I missed, uh, what I decided wasn't important at the time. Interesting. Okay, thank you. Okay. Thank you for calling. Steve, we have so little time left and there's so much that I still want to talk to you about. Um, I still want to talk to you about blogs, but before we go there, let's talk for a moment about American Mud Barks in the Yard. For those that are listening that might not be aware of what I'm talking about, it is the latest issue of Rudy Vanderlance's Emigre, Emigre number 68. It is a 35,000-word essay that is written by writer and designer David Barringer. Steve, what do you think? I thought it was wonderful to read. I mean, I think that because uh, David Berenger is relatively new to design, um, he's been a writer, he, he's been a, a designer as author, which is the, the focus of my MFA program. Uh, in fact, when I looked at his resume, I thought, wow, this would, he would have been a great uh, student, he would have been a great teacher. Yeah. Uh, but he's also a really good writer. He's, a, he's, a, he's written fiction. And I think if you can take the uh, tenets of fiction and apply them to nonfiction writing, which he's also done, and then cover design uh, in, a, in a way that uh, forces you from sentence to sentence to look forward to the next sentence, for, uh, look, look forward to the next paragraph, that's a great feat. And I think he's done that uh, as well, if not better, than many people who are doing it. So I was very impressed. Once you get down to the the fundamental ideas of the piece, I think there are some very interesting notions. Uh, there are some old uh, stones that are being turned again. Uh, but essentially, I found it uh, you know, a good read and, and a, a useful one because I think it will prompt people to uh, discuss and, yes. uh, uh, and debate. I think that uh, for a couple of days there, there was a rumor going around that David Berenger was really Rudy Vanderlance. I think anybody that Googles David Berenger will realize very quickly that it is indeed David Berenger and not Rudy Vanderlance. Now, is this the last issue of Emigre, or is there one more coming? I'm not sure I'm supposed to say. Oh, okay. Um, <laughs> I was under the impression that there was one more coming, but I'm not sure, and it's just breaking my heart that this magazine is going away. Well, Emigre has uh, been... Uh, a real touchstone for the latter part of the 20th century. From I know. I can't imagine the world without it, actually. I really can't. It, but it, it, what's, what's great about Emigre and what's great about Rudy is that he reinvented it a number of times. And, um, you know, at a certain point, I think what, what Rudy has uh, uh, accomplished is, as you said at the outset, honesty. Mm-hmm. And I haven't always agreed with Emigre, and I haven't always agreed with his his uh, policies, so to speak. But I do have the utmost respect. In fact, uh, my book, Mares to Emigre, uh, mm-hmm. which is about avant-garde magazine design, has him in the title. And um, uh, to me, uh, it's because he really deserves to be part of the bookends of design in the 20th century. Do you think that the world of blogging has impacted the way that uh, Emigre's 
uh, readership has um, been going? Well, yes, I do, but um, I, I, Rudy and I did an interview, which will be out in the next print magazine, uh, because he's also going to be in a, a major exhibition in, at the Pompidou Center this April or May in, in Paris, uh, the only graphic design firm uh, in the entire world to be so represented at this particular show. And um, I think the blogs, and he would agree that definitely blogging has cut into the things that he's been doing because his, his publication at the outset was a fanzine. Right. And he admits that. And, and fanzines get a lot of unbridled response, just as the blogs do now. I mean, the blogs are now kind of settling in or settling down, and you see more uh, intelligent and more thoughtful writing happening. Uh, it's still not necessarily edited the way a, a magazine would be edited. But the same was true with Emigre. In the early days of Emigre, there was a very loose editing hand. And then slowly but surely, he imposed more of uh, an editing voice and an editing overview. And uh, But I think the blog is just one part of uh, the totality of what Emigre is facing now. And, uh, you know, I think uh, he's making whatever decisions he has to make based on... Uh, his feelings of what he can accomplish. Well, Steve, you were talking about voice, you were talking about overview, and I can very, very confidently say that there is no one in our little industry right now that has more of a voice and an impactful overview than you two. And you have a sexy voice. <laughs> well, I do for this, for this show. <laughs> I'll be back to my usual voice next week. Uh, well, folks, we've come to the end of our seventh podcast, and I'd like to thank my lovely guest, Stephen Heller. I couldn't be doing this without the kind and patient people at Voice America Business, Denise, Chris, Lori, my executive producer, Brian Travis, and Ruben as well. I'd also like to thank the staff and my partners at Sterling, especially Lisa Grant. Please join me next week as I welcome one of the greatest designers in ours or any culture, Mr. Milton Glazier. Thank you for listening, everybody. See you next week. Voice America Business would like to thank you for tuning in for Design Matters with Debbie Millman. Be sure to listen every Friday at 12 Pacific Standard Time for another exciting hour of Design Matters. Right here on the bottom line in business talk, Voice America Business.